Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. It's the letter of our Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Sardis. And it is a letter that has no uh, commendation at all. Uh, very little said from the get-go. He comes out and he makes this harsh statement. The church is dead. You think it's alive, but it's dead. It's something for someone to... Consider a church dead and say, oh, that's a dead church over there. We went and visited. Didn't have much life or whatever. It's another thing altogether when the Lord Jesus, who has eyes of fire that can penetrate into every area, who is the head of the church, who intimately is aware of everything that takes place, who holds the the pastors in his hands. When Jesus says the church is dead, beloved That church is dead. However you want to define it, however you want to say it, uh, it is dead. What a sad testimony uh, to speak about this church in the city of Sardis that was a fairly large city, fortified city, protected uh, city. Uh, and somewhat an impenetrable city and, and therefore they had a, a lot of arrogance and a lot of confidence in their ability to be this impenetrable city. But even as we just saw, they thought they were impenetrable but ultimately were destroyed. Not once, but twice. And then even a third time in A.D. 17 by an earthquake. By an earthquake. They thought they were all of this. And in reality, they were not. They thought they were alive. But in reality, based upon Jesus' words, they were not. Let's take a look. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. The Bible says, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation or a name for being alive. But you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you will have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the spirit says to the churches. I'm so glad that verse 6 is repeated time and time again because it reminds us that this is not just a history lesson. This is not just like walking through a museum and learning about this church and its demise and this church and its thriving and this church and its history. No, no. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to His church And in speaking to His church, there are things for all of us in every church if we have ears to hear. I would remind you that John was on the Isle of Patmos and the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in His resurrected glorified body. And He told John to write these things. Write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. 
And in that section, he gave John seven letters to go to seven messengers, and they would travel along the path. And so he wrote the letters, he gave them to the messengers. It would be a common postal path. Uh, But perhaps these messengers, because he says, give these to the messengers, write to the messenger of. He would write the letters and perhaps there would be seven messengers that would leave along the path. And they would come to the city of Ephesus and drop off the first messenger in his letter. And then they would come to the the next uh, city and they would drop off um, in in Smyrna and they would drop off the second messenger. And then they come to Pergamum and drop off the third messenger in his letter and then Thyatira and now there would only be three. The messenger to Sardis, the messenger to Philadelphia, and the messenger to Laodicea. And they come to this city of Sardis. The messenger who we have indicated before through previous studies, a messenger of God, a person who would represent that church, I want to point out something here. I've said it before, but just to make sure it hasn't missed it. He's writing to the messenger of the church. And he's talking to the one who would represent the church as a whole. Who would have the characteristics of that church. And one of the reasons why uh, I would say that it would not be uh, an angel, like a holy angel in heaven that he's writing to. Even though the word is angel here is because... Well, in some letters he calls this messenger to repent and to return to him. As representative of the church, you are to do this and lead the church if they have ears to hear to repent and to return. And of course, a holy angel would never have anything to repent of because at the moment they would have sinned in the past, they would have been cast out of heaven. So he says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis and As you know from times past, as he describes himself as not only the author of this, but he pulls from uh, chapter 1 and pulls a description from chapter 1 in and makes it personal for each situation and each location. I find it interesting in the way that Jesus reveals himself. Even as we saw in Thyatira, there would be metalworks there. There would be fire and brass or, or, or varnished, burnished bronze. That would be kind of a symbol of judgment that would be uh, uh, familiar to them in, in their setting. Here in this place, he basically is talking to a dead church. And a dead church would lack two things. They would lack the Holy Spirit of God working and moving in their midst. And they would like faithful pastors who would lead the church into, into life. And so I think it's interesting how this, to this dead church, Jesus reveals himself and kind of brings in two elements that would, missing that would contribute to their deadness, namely the absence of the Holy Spirit. And of godly, faithful pastors. Notice how he, how he introduced himself. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought the Holy Spirit was one. And I get confused on the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are three persons, and yet there's only one God. That's right. One God in three persons. It's not modalism. It's not that one becomes another becomes another. It's not that the Father became the Son and the Father no longer existed. And then the Son went away and became the Holy Spirit and came down. That would be the theological term modalism where one becomes the other becomes the other. It's that all three exist completely and fully within the Trinity as one God. In each of them, they are complete and holy God. They are co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent. And yet there is only one God. And you say, okay, I'm familiar with that. But now, what about these seven spirits here? And why are you saying that that refers to the Holy Spirit? Uh, you asked some very good questions. Thank you for that, for that question. Thank you for that question. The Holy Spirit is a spirit which can't be seen. And so everywhere the Holy Spirit is at work, 
Oftentimes in Scripture, there is a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. I can give you a couple of examples that you will readily be familiar with from from Scripture. For example, remember when Jesus was baptized? Jesus went out to John who was baptizing at the Jordan River and there Jesus enters into the water and, and, and John is going to baptize Jesus. And when John baptized Jesus, he takes him and places him under the water and brings him up out of the water. And what happened? You remember immediately the Holy Spirit as a dove flew and landed on him. Now, beloved, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is white with feathers. That's not what that means. But that was the, the physical, visible manifestation so that people could see that the Holy Spirit had come upon him. By the way, that's a great passage to prove the Trinity. That there are three distinct persons and only one God. Because there you have Jesus in the water being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit coming down and landing upon Jesus. Then you have the voice out of the heaven of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit there was manifest as a dove coming down and resting upon Jesus. You remember over in the book of Acts also, secondly, on the day of Pentecost... After Jesus had resurrected and ascended, He said, I want you to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come down. And and when the Holy Spirit came down, there was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God that came down. The Holy Spirit manifested His presence as tongues as of fire that rested on the heads of the people. No, the Holy Spirit isn't tongues of fire. But there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the tongues of fire that rested upon their heads. Again, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. Here, when we see here, he says this, that thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God. He may be referring to an Old Testament prophecy. In fact, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11 may be what he is uh, referring to. Uh, seems pretty uh, likely that that is indeed uh, the case. In the days of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11... Just listen, if you will, and, and uh, I'll read it to you so you don't have to take time to actually turn there. But make a note so you can study it so that you can know that this what this pastor is saying. You checked it out for yourself. I know our church is called Doxa Church, but we want Berean Christians in Doxa Church. And the Bereans were the ones who didn't just take the apostles after word, but they searched out the scriptures for themselves. So here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So when you see chapter 2, verse 1, you have the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So if you take those six things and add them to the Spirit of the Lord, there's the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. The sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. He is a Spirit of the Lord, a Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, a Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There's also a reference that we've looked at before when we did the the, uh, the stone prophecies. We looked in uh, Zechariah chapter 4 around uh, verse 10 and following that it talks about the eyes of the Lord, the seven eyes of the Lord being the seven spirits of, of God. So one Holy Spirit in His sevenfold ministry, and Jesus as He comes, He says, thus says the one who has, which is a better translation, some of your translations say, who holds. It's not that He holds it, holds it back. It means that He has access to them. He, He has them. He has the seven spirits of God. And He also has the seven stars. What are the seven stars? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. 
uh, we see that there is John to, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. You see that? There's a reference to the seven spirits uh, again. And from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness. And he's talking to the, the, the priest and, and the believers. And, and just, just for the sake of time, go down to verse 20, if you will. It says up earlier that he holds the, the stars in his, in his hands. Verse 20 tells us the mystery of the stars. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these probably bishops or pastors or somewhat representative of the church, he holds in his hands. He holds in his hands. It's interesting that God reveals himself as here, as both the one who has the Holy Spirit and who has uh, these pastors or these bishops, these holy representatives should be of these churches because that is exactly what's lacking in the church at Sardis. Let's see what he has to say to the church at Sardis. He says, I know your works. That word works again is, is Aragon. It means the deeds, the things that you have done. We've seen this word over and over and over. And sometimes I think, uh, uh, and I don't want to miss this, that, that he does indeed sees the, the deeds. He sees the, the works and efforts that we do. And he sees the motivations and the intentions with which we, we do those things. And it's vitally important that we understand that the things that we do are the things that are visible and observable by God. By God. And he sees who we are and he sees what we're doing. And he even sees the way that we do it and whether or not we complete them or whether we leave them lacking short. Notice what he says, I, I know your works. He says you have a reputation for being alive. So to have a name or reputation for being alive, perhaps would mean that there would be others in the area that would look at that church and they would say, wow, I mean, that's from every, from every human indication, that is a thriving, living church. Now, he didn't give us any information about it, and very little is written in history. In fact, the only famous person that comes from the church at Sardis a little bit later uh, is a, uh, uh, a commentator named Malito, and he wrote the first uh, commentary on the book of Romans. Interesting, though, Sardis is where Aesop, you know, Aesop's fables, comes from this area as well, just as a side note. But from every indication from the outside in, if you put in your mind, if we would, if you take away the working of God in the midst of a church, what would a live thriving church, what would a church that has a reputation of being alive look at? Well, it may be a busy church. Maybe a busy church. They may have a lot of things going on. And yet in the midst of all the things going on, perhaps, perhaps, it's more of a social club or a uh, a, a club that meets all the pragmatic needs within the community, but without doing anything spiritual. Um, perhaps it was a large church. Oftentimes whenever we go, wow, that's a big church. That church has a, has a lot going on there. Look at that great big building. That, that, that must be evidence that that is a thriving church. And, May I simply tell you the ability to gather a crowd is not the same as building a congregation. And the size of the building that you build is only in relation to the amount of money that you can raise. So if you compromise your doctrine, you compromise your theology, you don't take a stand for anything, you become more of a charity rather than a church, and you pull in a lot of people who are maybe uh, have the means and ability to and a desire to really want to help in charitable things around uh, the city and do all that stuff, and they think it'd be a good cause because they're a part of it now to have a large building. They'll give a lot of money to it, and you can build the building. I, I've said this before when I wasn't planting. I've been involved in church 
buildings uh, in the past. We built a $2.4 million Family Life Center, Education Center, and things uh, like that uh, in the past. I've been in places where we've built buildings and not built buildings. And, and I'll simply tell you this, that it is true even when we were building that building. Uh, we were told as we were getting counsel that the easiest thing that a church will ever do is build a building. And I said, really, I would think it would be the most difficult. No, no, it's the easiest thing to do. It doesn't require any spiritual fortitude whatsoever, really, to build a building. It just requires planning. It requires fundraising. It requires coming together, selling on design, and telling the contractors to, to, to go to work. Building a building is, is no big deal. But to other people, it kind of seems like a big deal. In fact, there are probably those, maybe even who have gathered with us before, who feel somewhat, or maybe even here now, if I'm bold enough to say, who feel some like that this is not exactly a real church because we don't really have our own place, or we don't have our own building, or we don't have this, or we don't have that. Can I just remind you that probably from the outside looking in, Sardis had all of those things. Uh, they had a reputation. They weren't just, they didn't just do something one time. They did whatever it is, whatever it looked like, whatever buildings they built, however they gathered and whatever they did, they had the reputation of being alive. Can I just tell you that there are a lot of churches, and I would say a lot of very, very large churches, and I will also say there are a lot of churches even within our very own city who have the reputation of being alive. But truthfully speaking, from God's judgment, are dead. Some of the symptoms I've seen of that, for example, is when a church uh, that once had the power of God compromises and the power of God moves on and they put plans and programs in place and then they begin to compromise and do things to attract and draw people. In other words, when the Spirit of God is grieved or departs from a place, then the substitute of man is the best thing that you have to offer. And there are a lot of churches who are simply engaged in finding the best substitute that man has to offer in order to continue to hold the reputation and look like they are alive. When a church gets away from being led by Christ and they're led simply by the Constitution and the Constitution is the way that they come together in order to get along and how we do business around here without giving way or sway to the Spirit of God to work and move into the midst. And we have all agreed that we will do things this way and it is more run like a business than a church, the Holy Spirit of God. Perhaps would say that once was a church that was alive, but is dead. I can promise you this. If you have an unqualified pastor, if you have unqualified leadership, if you have those within the leadership position who are troublemakers and people within leadership positions who have created issues and, and they're not engaged in worshiping and responding to God. Some of the greatest pushback that I've, I've gotten, to be honest with you, in pastoring churches was when I required the pastoral staff and the deacons to participate in worship on the Lord's Day instead of always being out where they didn't have to engage in congregational worship. Oh, the pushback. You see, because though they were in leadership positions, there was no heart to gather in the corporate gathering in the worship of God. That's why we will not have a youth program that meets on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesdays if it requires the same leaders to do all three. I do not want anybody in the history of our church if you have to be out of church on Sunday morning because you're keeping the nursery or you're engaged in those children's ministries or activities, if we decide to do those things, then that will be something I'm up to a limited point. But, but 
to then be able to come into worship on Sunday evening. I don't, I don't want you in the nursery on Sunday morning and then serving somewhere else on Sunday evening. Somewhere. No, no. You need to be part of the corporate gathering of worship. That is what we do. That is the primary thing for which we do. And yet, those who are even in pastoral leadership or on staff or leaders, lay leaders of a church that have no interest or desire to worship corporately, they may have thriving, striving programs, but... Beloved, those churches are dead. They're dead. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You're dead. You know, it's interesting. If you say, well, it doesn't look dead. I mean, it looks alive. Well, so does a star. For example, John MacArthur said this in, in his sermon on this, and, and I listen to a lot of sermons and study a, a, along the way and kind of pull in a lot of different things. John MacArthur said this, he, he read somewhere, so I'm glad to know that he reads uh, somewhere too, that, that uh, you know, 1.86 thousand, what's the speed of light? Who knows, speed of light? 1.86 thousand feet per second. That sounds right. Thank you, son. Thank you, son. <laughs> Listen, it takes for for a star that is 33 light years away, it takes 25 years for the light of that star to reach Earth. 25 years. That star could have already plunged in the darkness and be non-existent. And the light will continue to come from that dead star, if you will, for 25 years. Though it is already plunged into darkness. Why? Because light has to travel from there to here. It emanated light and the light is traveling. Just because the source of light goes dark, the light continues to emanate from that star until it ceases. Its rays cease to come. That apparently was the situation with the church at Sardis. Perhaps at one time they were alive, but now though they were still surviving and though they were still in their place, they were dead. But you're dead. Completely dead, 100% dead. Jesus' word says they are dead. They are dead. And yet there was a part within that church that was weak and dying, but had not quite breathed out its last. Jesus recognized that. Notice what He says. He says, verse 2, Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die. So Jesus says the church is dead, but there's some element or aspect of that church that's still alive. As I thought about this, I thought it might be like this. It might be that the church overall is dead. Though they have the greatest music program, and though they have the greatest liturgy, and though they have all of this gathering and all these things that are taking place, the Spirit of God is no longer on that place. But yet, perhaps, there down that Sunday school hallway is one small Sunday school gathering of faithful saints who understand and are concerned about the condition of their church. And yet, rather than throwing in the towel, they remain and pray faithfully that God would breathe life into that church. By the way, if God doesn't breathe life in, there will be no life. They have no capacity in and of themselves to bring themselves to life. To life. I'm going to remind you both Ephesians chapter 2 and Verse 1 in Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 talks about deadness, right? In relation to salvation, dead in our trespasses and sins is how it describes it. So what brings about deadness in a church? What brings about deadness is sin. Sin in a church that's undisciplined and and not dealt with will bring death to a church. And that is why sin must be dealt with. With, He says, be alert and strengthen. Fan the flames of what remains. Don't stop and let the fire of life go out. Fan the flames. Be alert. Stay awake. 
Eli's coaches yesterday, they were trying to get the guys to stay on point and stay focused on when stay in the game. You know, a two-hour game and when you're killing the other team 38 to nothing, it's easy to start looking at the mountains and daydreaming or watching the planes fly by or whatever it is Whenever you're when you're tired. And so he would yell from the sidelines, Stay woke! What did that mean? I had no idea, but it sounded good. <laughs> Stay alert. Stay awake. Wake up. Stay focused. Don't give up. Be alert. Stay awake. Strengthen what remains, which is about to die. And notice what he says, For I have not found your works complete before my God. Let me simply say this. We don't know anything about the church at Sardis. Apart from being found here in the book of Revelation, it's not mentioned anywhere else. We don't know what these works are. We don't have this whatever it is that they started and did not complete. And I think God intended it that way. Because He wouldn't want us to get caught up on, well, they started this and it was incomplete. And they started this and it was complete. He would not want that. What He would want is, is He would want us to look within ourselves. Let the Spirit of God say what He says to the churches. What is it that we have started that we have not completed? What is it that, that, that you have started out on in a good path with a lot of energy and have fizzled out and left it undone, incomplete, forgotten, and gone by the wayside. I would simply remind you that Jesus says this, I have not found your works complete. And notice what He says, the works complete before. I think it's interesting that Jesus would say this, My God. You see, if this church was dealt uh, was filled with people who were still dead in their trespasses and sins. An unregenerated church would certainly be a dead church. Then God would not be their God, but He would be His God. He doesn't say your work was complete before our God. It's almost like He draws a distinction with that word, my. Before my God. Before my God. As if it's not your God, unless you repent and you come to Him. Unless you who are unregenerated become regenerated. You become converted. You become born again. You become a child of God. And however things it is. This is a church that is seemingly filled with unregenerate people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And Jesus says, it's not our God. It is my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. But we can surmise what those things that they were to remember and what those things they have received. What is it they should remember? I think the things that they should remember would be the sound doctrine that would have come to them in their founding. I think the thing they should remember is the the gospel, the the salvation plan of God that came to them early. I think that would certainly be a part of it. I think the evidence of God's grace that was on them and upon them for the years that they existed as a church to, to go back and capture those things and don't forget from where you have come. I, I would say that 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 when he says remember. Remember, he, he's saying, look, you, you don't need to completely be disconnected from your past because at one time you were alive. You need to go back and connect to the things from when you were alive. Remember sound doctrine. Remember the salvation that, that came to you. Remember the gospel of God that came to you. Remember those things which are, which are there. Remember the evidences of God's grace. May we never forget the time that the guy called and said, Hey, we want to give a copy or two a new church startup and evidence of grace. May we never forget, right? May we never forget Clarence going under the water and coming back up giving evidence of his salvation. May we never forget Pam walking in, having had her foot in a cast for all of this time to see the evidence of God's grace and bringing healing there and in the days ahead to see the announcement that one is 
cancer-free. May we never forget that. He says, remember. What you had received and heard. Keep it. It matters. It's important. When you go back and connect with those things that were part of the foundation and you see now how far you've come from it, do the only thing you can do. Repent. Repent. You've strayed. You've been carried off. You have gone and now you've gotten yourself in trouble. I remember a few years ago when Eli and I with my dad and a lot of people were um, uh, flounder fishing up in the chest across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel in the waterways up there. And we were in the boat and as always, there's always stories about the boats breaking down. In this particular case, the the boat broke down and we were drifting out towards sea. We weren't drifting in. The tide was going out and carrying us out to sea. And thankfully, even as we got through the mouth and had a little ways, we had no cell signal hardly. I mean, we were just, there was a sandbar there. We just kind of did our best to get over that sandbar. And we're standing on the sandbar as the tide's going out. Hoping that all the people around us will come find us and get us. Before we hit that sandbar, right, we were just being carried out. Listen, we weren't flying out. We weren't speeding out. We weren't dead set to go into the ocean. No, we were just fishing and drifting along into danger without even realizing it. Until one of us said, uh, we might need to move in and went to crank the boat and it wouldn't start. <coughs> there are churches that drift towards liberalism by the very nature of the church. They've made some bad choices. They maybe have had some bad leadership and they drift towards liberalism and God sends a pastor in or God wakes up some people in a church and they come back and, and they say, you know what, this is wrong. We've got to get back to our foundation where we need to go. But beloved, there are churches who have set their face like flint towards liberalism and there's nothing that you or God is going to do to bring them back. And those churches, regardless of what they look like, are dead. <coughs> He says to remember, and he says to return, and he says to keep, and he says to repent. And he says, if you are not alert, if you're not alert, sometimes I get a little oh, worked up over this thing. When, when people want to come and be a part of it, and they want to bring their ideas in, and they want to bring, hey, we're gonna, and they don't want to figure out who what our DNA is, and who we are, and what God's called to be. They want to come in and change us. They want to come in and take us into a direction. I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to guard the identity of this church. We're not going to allow anyone to come in who's not a part of us, and to understand the DNA of who we are, and be like-minded in our vision, and mission, and values to come in. And then at least we're going to stay alert. Because if we don't, he says that he will come like a thief. You have no idea of what hour he will come upon you. Just like the city of Sardis that was fortified by that great wall. They had such arrogance and confidence that they were impenetrable. Only... To know that even by their own actions, they revealed their weaknesses that ultimately led their enemies into the city to attack and ultimately destroy it. Not one time through the secret door, but a second time through the gate where the dead bodies were thrown over, indicating a weakness at that particular location. They didn't know when the attack would come. In fact, they said the attack wouldn't come because no one could come. And yet it did. 
Beloved, the Lord Jesus is going to do the same thing. These churches that look as though they're alive, that have the reputation that's alive, they are dead. And it is only a matter of time when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and straighten all that mess out and reveal the things that's there. How do I know that? Because God's Word says so. Be the few people, verse 4, but I, you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. What in the world is that about? Well, if we're going to believe the Bible, what it is, and starting next week, all of you will have to follow in Sybil and Yolanda's effort and maybe Hannah too and wear white to worship. No, in actuality, even in the in worshiping in the temple with the pagan gods, they would have to dress and clean themselves up. They would wear white that did not have any dirt. And if they presented themselves to the temple of even the pagan gods, which were no gods at all, and were dirty and filthy, they would not be allowed to come in. That's the picture that he's making. He's not giving... He's not saying the way dress ought to be today uh, in the church. He's saying that he's using the, the context of the illustration of that city and saying this, that there were a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. They will not be turned away. They will not be sent away because they've continued to live a holy, separated life with Christ in the same way the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and look at this I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels in heaven in Sardis's day when a person was arrested and con- and condemned of a crime on the book that contained all the citizens of that city they would go in and even before the person was publicly executed they would erase his name off the book listing all the citizens so the person was alive they were condemned they had not yet died but their names were erased when we get a little bit further on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that there are there is a set of books, plural, that contains all of our names and contains all of our deeds and motives and intentions with which we've done those things. And then there will be a book of life. And all of those who are truly born again, those who have been regenerated, those who have been saved, their names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And what he's saying here is, is if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it will never be blotted out. It will never, you will never be condemned. But beloved, if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, your name is founded in the books, plural, that records all of those things. And you will be judged for the works and the deeds that you have done. And that will determine your eternal destiny. And if you're being judged by those, I promise you, you'll come up short and spend all of eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But those who have repented and believed... Our names are found in the Lamb's book of life. Will it stay there? Can anybody take my name out? Jesus said on the promise of His authority, I will never erase His name from the book of life. And not only that, but I will acknowledge His name. There you go. That's proof in the Bible right there. Women do not go to heaven. His name. Kidding, 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 kidding. We'll acknowledge His name before my Father. Not before my Father, but before His angels. Now, number one, can you imagine... I mean, honestly, can you imagine... A little bit later in Revelation, John turns and he sees the Lamb standing as if slain. 
before the foundation of the world. He sees the resurrected, slain Lamb of God. Can you imagine the first time you visibly, physically, in the presence of the Lord Jesus hear His, hear your name on His lips? Usually it's name dropping the other way around. Right? We talk about the people that we know and the people we associate with. Oh, I know so and so and so. No, it's not like that at all. This is God acknowledging our names personally and individually to the Father. Can you imagine the first time? I mean, you got all excited the first time your kids or your grandkids said your name. First time they called you, whatever it is that they call you. And now your names, for the, not only for one time, but multiple times throughout all of eternity, will be heard from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledged to the Father in heaven. And his angels. I don't know what that'll be like. And I don't know what it is, but I promise you for Jesus to mention our names before the Father and the presence of all the angels who are innumerable, he will thunderously pronounce our name in heaven. Indicating our relationship status with Him. And the angels will look at your life. This one? Are you kidding me? I mean, I've watched this one. And they've done this, 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 and this, this, and this. But beloved, you have received grace upon grace. Mercy upon mercy because you've received the gift of salvation from God. No wonder our salvation is that which the angels long to look. And they will hear your name mentioned in the lips of the Lord. He will acknowledge His name before the Father. And before his angels. Two points of application. Number one. May we pray together that we would be a church that is alive. And I don't mean alive from a reputation standpoint. Alive from what people look at from outside of us and see as they measure our statistics and our numbers and all those type things. But may the Lord Jesus Christ look upon Doxa Church and see life, His life, flowing through us. And beloved, I will remind you that the church is the people. And as the Christ life flows through you, when you come together and when we come together, His life will flow through us collectively. And we will be a church alive because you are alive individually. We will be a church alive when you as individuals who are alive come together with us who are alive to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I remind you that we should invite everybody that we can. And yes, use that cheesy saying if you want to. A church alive is worth the drive. People need to come and experience what we have here. Because I'm telling you, it is very unique and distinct from so many other churches even in our own city. But secondly, and probably even most importantly, where's your name written? When you stand before God, will you be with the crowd that He opens the books, plural, and looks at the works that you've done and finds you lacking 
and announces the condemnation and the fulfillment of that judgment separated from God forever in a place called hell. Beloved, the moment you breathe your last on this side of heaven, it is over and done with. Your eternity is forever sealed in stone. Or is your name found in the Lamb's book of life? Those for whom Jesus died. Those who have come and acknowledged their sin, not pretend like they weren't there, willfully said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior of the world. And nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And have you repented of your sins and called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? And therefore, your name is found written in the book of life. Never to be blotted out forever in His presence. If you're not sure, then I pray before you leave today, you come and see me or you would find another mature Christian and you would say, I want to make sure my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I want to know for sure that my name will be acknowledged on the presence of Jesus to His Father and to the heavenly angels. Repent and believe the gospel and be brought into the family of God. May He who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are... Lord, shaken to our core that there would be so-called churches that are dead. I'm thankful of Samson whose the power of God was upon him, but when he engaged in sin with Delilah on multiple occasions and finally revealed to her his strength, and while he was asleep she cut her hair, he got up and continued to act as though the power of God rested upon him when in fact it did not. It had departed and he didn't even know it father i pray that we would be a church alive and that father that we would be a church that is filled continuously with those whose names you will acknowledge before the father and the angels in heaven and that father that we are actively pursuing people and and bringing the gospel to them and loving them to salvation in christ that they too may be part of the family of god be part of this church which is so alive father may we be faithful May we be faithful in standing for truth. May we be willing to fight error. May we not go along just to get along with other churches. May we simply stand for truth. And may you find us faithful in all things. May we complete what we've started in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God. And Lord, we're going to give you the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, and God people said... Yeah.